It is truly a wonderful blessing to be together in the house of the Lord this morning worshiping. Um, those songs that we were singing, they're actually a foretaste of that which we will experience in heaven. Um, and we're going to sing and one more song at the end of the message. Um, and I've titled my message this, is What Will Heaven Be Like? And I'll give you an insight before I dive into the passage. Is that heaven will be very similar to what you just experienced a few moments ago. Before we dive into the passage, I have a story to share with you. How many of you grew up going to a summer camp? If I, so go ahead, raise your hand if you grew up going to a summer camp. All right. How many of you have ever been to not a summer camp, but let's say a family camp, right, where your whole family goes by a show of hands? Okay, a good, a good amount of you. All right, so my family also grew up going to the same summer camp, family camp that many of you who raise your hand go to, um, a place called Gold Lake Ministries. Every summer, we would drive an hour north up I, no, not I-75, up 23, then head west to Ann Arbor, and then go about two hours west to Kalamazoo, Michigan. And there's a lake there. It's one of the most beautiful places in all of Michigan, believe it or not. The water is just so impeccably clear and clean. But not only that, there's a wonderful ministry there called Gold Lake Ministries. And so every summer, my family would load up in our silver Honda Odyssey, and we'd stuff it full with as much stuff as we could possibly bring, and we would spend the week at family camp. And we'd worship the Lord. We'd spend time in community. We would share meals with one another. But one of the things that made family camp so special is not only did my family go, but our friends' families also went. And not only did my friends' families go, but their extended relatives would also go. And so we'd have a community back when I was in elementary of maybe 50 to 60 different people that would go to Gold Lake every summer during the same week. And so year after year, there were so many people that I only ever saw during that one week. But after 15 years of going consecutively, we grew in a deeper relationship with one another. And one of the families in particular, um, they had a dad. He was really tall, and he was super, super intense. His name was Matt. And we played pickleball. Now, 20 years ago, pickleball wasn't what it was today. There wasn't rackets and there wasn't courts everywhere, right? Not, it wasn't the new thing, right? But pickleball was this kind of rinky-dink thing if you couldn't afford a tennis court. So we played pickleball, but that's because we couldn't afford to actually play tennis. And this guy, his name was Matt. He was so intense. But I remember one thing about him as a kid. I remember that he was humble and that he was kind and he was super approachable. And so we'd laugh, and we'd play games, and we'd eat lunch, and we would eat dinner with him, and he was just so gentle. As we grew older, the years went by, we got into middle school, he would begin to rent a boat every summer, and he would get the nicest boat on the lake, I swear, and he would send us tubing. Now, if you've been tubing, you know that there's like a speed restriction that you're supposed to abide by, because if you go faster, the tubes could pop. Well, he would go so far above the, the speed limit that one summer, one of the tubes actually popped. And not only that, but he would send us flying off the tube, flying, launching us, catapulting us into the air. And as a middle school boy, 6th, 7th, and 8th grader, I, as you can imagine, absolutely loved it. As we got older, um, we began to enjoy conversation more, and we began to have questions about life, and we began to wonder what it was to come, you know, what was on the other door of high school. And so we began to ask this guy a question like, hey, Matt, what will it be like? What is your advice for us? How, where should we go to college? What should we study? How do we get a job? What are all these things that are coming at us that we have no idea how to comprehend? And we would sit late into the night, and he would give us the wisdom that he had. You see, my understanding 
um, of this man from when I was in elementary to when I was in middle school until when I was in high school was constantly changing. As I got to know more about who he was and I saw more of him revealed, he was just the man, but I saw and understood more of who he was. Fast forward to when I'm in college, and it so happens that this family that I've only ever seen at family camp actually lives about an hour south of where I'm going to school. And so they invite me over for a weekend, and I've never been to their house. I have no idea where they live, but they invite me over. So I show up for a weekend, and I'll never forget. I show up on their front door, and how many of you guys have ever seen the movie Home Alone? It's pretty popular, right? It's probably one of the most popular Christmas movies, at least of my generation. And so you guys know the Home Alone house. It's brick. It's got white columns. It's perfectly symmetrical. It's beautiful, right? You know the house I'm talking about? His house looked exactly like that, right? And so I woke up. I, I walk up, and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And uh, the boy walks out, and he takes me around to the garage, and we walk through the garage, and I'll never forget. There's two cars in the garage. On the left-hand side, there's this bright red Ferrari. And on the right-hand side, there's a 1997 Ford minivan that's falling apart. And I'm like, okay. And I asked my friend, I'm like, why do you have these two cars? Why the Ferrari? And why, like, is this kind of a metaphor for life or something? Like, what are you trying to do? And um, we walk into the kitchen, and we ask his dad. And he says, well, the Ferrari is what I drive for fun on the weekends. But the minivan is what I drive into work every day. <laughs> and not only do I drive the minivan into work, but I actually only take it just a few miles to the train stop. And then I get on the train, and I ride the train into Chicago. And I thought, okay, that, that's really interesting. And I, and I wondered, like, well, what kind of a job do you have that you have a Ferrari and a 1997 Ford minivan sitting in your garage? But I didn't ask. He, he said that he worked at some company called Deloitte, but I had no idea what this company was. I still don't really know what it is that they do. Um, so I said, okay, well, I just kind of put it away, and we enjoy the weekend, and it was super wonderful. Well, fast forward a year later, um, and I, my friends and I, we were juniors or seniors, and we began to get into urban exploration. Urban exploration is where you would climb abandoned buildings or you would go into places that have been shut down. And my friend Caleb is actually in the audience and he came and visited and he got to do this with me one time. Um, but it was super dangerous, but it's super fun, right? And um, one of the things we would do is not just climb abandoned buildings, but we would look for buildings that were currently being built um, and that were high rises, right? And then we would try to climb those as well. And so how I would find these places, I would get on Google Maps, and I would look at abandoned areas and see if I could find anything that was interesting. And then I would look at the, high, the skyline of Chicago and look at the buildings that were being built. And then my friends, we'd get our longboards and we'd ride to those places and we'd just kind of scope it out and see if it was good enough to climb or if we'd get in trouble or what it looked like. Well, one of the days I was looking for buildings, and I happened to see this beautiful skyscraper. And across the side of it is the name Deloitte. And that rings a bell in my mind. And I stop and I think, I'm like, hey, that's where my friend's dad worked. And so I decide to type in his name. And I decide to type in his company. And up pops, pop, up pops his profile. And I had no idea. But this guy, this guy that I had known for over 15 years, he happened to be one of the chief executive officers at this huge company. And so I look up, well, what does Deloitte do and how much money do they make? And they make over $65.5 billion a year. I was absolutely floored. I was absolutely shocked. And it just blew me away because I had known this man for so long, but I had no idea what he did for a living. And I had no idea how much, you know, money he was an overseer of, right? But as I began to know more, and as I began to understand him more, things began to make more sense. You see, my understanding of this man changed 
from that which I had when I was a little boy, right? As we get to know people more, oftentimes our understanding of them grows as we see more of who they are. And now you might be wondering to yourself, well, what's the point of this story? Well, the point of the story is this, is that many of us, and this is what the Lord put on my heart, many of us have not grown beyond our initial understanding of who Jesus is. Maybe we came to know Christ when we were a little one, or maybe we came to know Christ when we were in college, or maybe we came to know Christ when we were in a season of suffering that's fairly common, right? But many of us have not grown beyond our initial understanding of who Jesus is. And so I've titled my message, What Will Heaven Be Like? Because we're going to walk through two passages that give us a vision and understanding of who Jesus is. And friends, what I hope that you see after we read these two passages is that when we see Jesus, when our understanding and when our knowledge of him grows, we will have one reaction. And that one reaction will be to worship him. And friends, that is what heaven will be like. But before I go any further, let's pause. Let's pray and ask God to open up our hearts to his word. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is to be here in your church, to be worshiping you, to be learning about you, to be reading the Bible with the saints, God. And so, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts to your word, that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes so that we might see you more clearly that we might know more about who you are, that we might grow in our understanding of you, Lord. And as we grow in our understanding and our vision of you, we would be like the saints in heaven. We would worship you. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to read Revelation this morning, chapter 4, and Revelation chapter 5. But if you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It will be on the screen behind me. So what I need you to know about Revelation before we begin is that it's the last book in the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. You go to the very end, and you're likely to end up there. But not only is it the last book in the Bible, the bulk of what Revelation is about is a vision that God showed this apostle, a disciple named John. John was with Jesus, and God showed this guy, John, a vision of what it will be like at the end of time. The first first three chapters, John's writing letters to churches in uh, modern-day Turkey, And then in chapter 4, he picks up with the vision of what it will be like in heaven. And this vision takes place at the end of time. So read with me. And as we read, we're going to be catapulted in to the halls of heaven. What a glorious thing. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let me turn there myself. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the Spirit. So John's saying, instantly I was in the Spirit. He's telling us that he's seeing a vision, that what he's about to see isn't his present reality. It's not circumstances that are around him, but he's seeing something that's going to, again, take place in the future. John is in the spirit. And so what does John see when he's in the spirit, when he sees this vision? He says, I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. If we were to stop just right there, we could preach a whole message on that one verse and that one idea alone. That in heaven, what John sees is that he sees a throne. And what he sees on the throne is one sitting on it. And that verse alone is enough to bring us comfort and peace. 
You know, there's so much chaos and suffering and disorder in the world. And it should give us peace. It should give us hope. It should give us understanding, knowing that there is one in heaven who sits on the throne. How does he describe the one in heaven sitting on the throne? He says the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. Now, John's describing a vision of the Father sitting in heaven on his throne. And and the the vision is so otherworldly, so beyond us, that he's going to use images that help us understand what he's seeing. But these images aren't exactly what he's seeing, but he's trying to use words to best describe what he's seeing, but he's kind of at a loss for words. And so when he sees the Father sitting on the throne, he uses two words to describe him. First, he says he's like Jasper and Carnelian. And I have pictures of rocks, Jasper and Carnelian. On the left is Jasper, on the right is Carnelian. It's a little bit washed out on the black screen, but these are bright red glowing rocks. And I'll ask you, what do you think of when you think of bright red glowing color? What comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is maybe an idea of God's judgment, or maybe an idea of God's justice, or maybe an idea of God's wrath, right? These are all things that I associate with these colors, and I think that's what John is writing about. That's why he sees that color, because he sees God, and he know, he's knowing, and he's recognizing who he is. But not only does John describe the father, the one sitting on the throne in heaven, as Jasper and Carnelian. Notice what he says next. He says, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And I have a picture of an emerald as well. What do you think of when you see this color? Yeah, you think of peace. You think of life. I think of forgiveness. I think of mercy. I think of God being kind and God being patient and God being slow to anger. And so it just blows my mind that the first thing that John sees, the father sitting on the throne, how he describes him is as a red, hot, fiery wrath. But then surrounding him is this glow of an emerald and we're reminded of peace and mercy and kindness and love. And we see in the father sitting on the throne in heaven, these two things coexisting together, these two beautiful colors. What else does John see? Read with me in verse 4. He sees 24 thrones surrounding him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now, there's a lot of imagery here and in the verses that we're about to read, and we don't know everything that John has seen, and we don't know who the elders necessarily are. The best that we can do as readers on this side of heaven is make a guess as who we might think they are, But what I think the elders might represent is you see 24 divides quite nicely into two groups of 12, right? And two groups of 12, and this is what Bible scholars think it might be, but again, they're not certain. So 24 divides into two groups of 12, and there's one group of 12 in the Old Testament, namely the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And then there's another group of 12 in the New Testament, namely the 12 disciples. And so what I think this might mean when we see these 24 elders surrounding the throne is it's representative of the entirety of God's people from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, from the tribe of Israel as well as from the church. And so there's 24 elders, and how does it describe them? It says that they have white robes and that they have crowns. You see, in the Bible, it says that when we are in heaven, when we are in the presence of the Father, that he is going to give us a new set of clothes. And he's going to give us white robes that shine brilliantly, like whites that we can never imagine. And not only that, but he's going to give us a crown. And we're going to come back to those crowns in just a moment. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. 
And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Verse 6. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. Now these four living beings, they show up elsewhere in Scripture. And in each place that they're, they're described in Scripture, they're all described just a little bit different. So the description that we're about to see is not exactly perfect, right? And it's not saying this is exactly what he saw, but he's using his best words to describe these four living beings. But we know that these four living beings are angels, and they're surrounding the throne of God. And the thing is, is that, to be honest, they're actually quite terrifying, the way that Scripture describes them. It says that they have six wings, and they are covered in eyes. In verse 7, it says, The first of these living beings was like a lion, and the second was like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, and we'll pause there. So we might ask ourselves a question, what is the purpose of these living beings, these four angels, being covered in eyes? And what I think it means and what Bible commentators tell us is that the living beings covered in eyes is to, to represent that they have sight and so that they can see everything. And we might ask the question, well, why do they need to have so many eyes? And it's so that they can see the glory of the one that is sitting on the throne. And friends, we might ask ourselves, why is it that we don't worship? Why isn't that we don't see the one sitting on the throne? And we might begin to think like maybe it's because we don't have sight to see. That's our word for this morning. And when the living beings see the one who is sitting on the throne, what is their response? They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And it says that whenever these four living beings cry out and worship, it says the elders and all the other angels around them also join in the chorus. Verse 9, whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne. I absolutely love that image. I absolutely love that picture. You see, who gave the elders their robes and who gave the elders their crowns? It was the father. It was the one sitting on the throne. But now that they see him sitting on the throne, it's like they rightfully take off their crowns and they lay it at his feet saying, no, father, you are the one who is worthy. You are the true king. You are the one who is worthy to wear this crown. And isn't that such an incredible picture that the father who gives us gifts, that we then take those gifts and we rightfully give them back to him. We say, you are the one who is worthy of praise. And that's what we see happening with the 24 elders. And they fall down and they worship him. But why do they worship him? Notice very carefully what they say next in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord our God. Why is he worthy, O Lord our God? You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Here's the key words. For you created all things. And they exist because you created what you pleased. You see, the Father in heaven, the one sitting on the throne. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of all glory and honor simply because he created us. He is worthy of our praise because he made us. 
we are his. We would not exist had he not created us. If the Father had done nothing else throughout the entirety of creation, he would still be so worthy of our praise. Why? Because he created us. Amen? But guess what? God didn't stop there. That's not the only vision that John sees. And the next vision, if the first vision doesn't blow your mind, the next vision will, okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. John also sees another vision. He sees a vision of the Father, the one sitting on the throne, and he holds up a scroll. Now, in John's day, scrolls were commonly used by the ruling emperors to be a decree of their will. And then they would often be sealed with seven seals to mark their significance, to mark their importance. And so now the Father in heaven, he's sitting on the throne, he has a a scroll and he's holding it up. And what that scroll represents is his will for that which is to come. And it's sealed with seven seals signifying its authority, signifying its importance, signifying how treasured this document is. You see, the Father knows what is going to happen. And so he holds up the scroll And then an angel cries out in verse 2, and he says, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll? Open it. There's silence. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. We'll pause there for just a moment. Could you imagine being John? And God shows you this vision about what is to come. God shows you a vision of the end times. God shows you a vision to comfort his people so that we can know what's going to happen in the end. And God holds up the scroll, and and it's about to be opened, but then no one is found worthy to open it. And John's like, he's so close, but yet no one is found worthy to open the scroll on heaven, in heaven or on earth. And so John, in verse 4, he begins to weep. He begins to weep bitterly, the text says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But verse 5, but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So those two titles, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the heir to David's throne, those are Old Testament references to Jesus, the coming Messiah. And he says, the Messiah, he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to take the authority and to open it and to enact God's will upon the earth. He is the one who is worthy. And we'll talk about why he is worthy in just a moment. But remember, why is the Father, why is the one sitting on the throne worthy of praise? Because he created all things. Okay, but they're going to sing a different song when the Lamb takes the scroll. But verse 6, let's not miss it. Then I saw a Lamb. That looked as if it had been slaughtered. John sees a lamb, but it's not just a lamb. It's a a bloody lamb. It's a lamb that has endured suffering. It's a lamb that looks as if it's been killed. And let's find comfort in that verse as well, right? That in heaven, Jesus, he's going to bear the marks of his suffering for you and I. And he bears it. He wears it like scars on his arm. And it will always be a reminder of his love for you and I. And Jesus is in heaven right now, and he still bears the marks of his suffering, that which he bore for you and I. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. How does John describe the lamb besides being bloody? He said, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God. Okay, let's stop there for just a moment. So the lamb, also, again, quite terrifying, but these are images and these are analogies that tell us about the lamb. And this is that the lamb has seven horns, okay? Now, in the Bible, horns are typically significant and they're symbols of power. 
And the number seven signifies perfection, right? God created the, the earth in seven days, and seven shows up all throughout Scripture. And so it's the number of perfection, right? It's complete. It's perfect. And so the lamb has seven horns. So what we can begin to understand that that might mean is that the lamb has the perfect amount of power. It's complete. It's lacking in nothing. And not only that, not only is it lacking in nothing, but it's not like overpowerful. It's not too powerful, right? It's the perfect amount of power. Let us find comfort in that. But not only does the lamb have the perfect amount of power, he has seven eyes, right? Which means he has the perfect amount of sight. And so the lamb, the bloody lamb that was slain for you and I has a perfect amount of power and he has a perfect amount of sight. He sees all things. And let us find comfort in that. Why might the lamb need, why might the lamb desire to see all things? Scripture tells us, here's another passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. So you see the lamb has a perfect power. Not only does he have the perfect power, but he also has the perfect sight. And he's looking, and he's looking to strengthen you. He's looking to strengthen I, those of us whose hearts are committed and set on him. Let's find comfort in that again. This passage, honestly, is so comforting, right? Because he sees us. And not only does he see us, but he has the power to save us, right? The lamb, the lamb that was slaughtered for you and I. In verse 7. All is quiet, I imagine. In verse 7, the lamb steps forward to take the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he takes the scroll, and the scroll, remember, it's representative of authority and power. And so the lamb walks up, and it's like he's taking the ring. It's like he's taking the torch, and he's ready to do the will of his father yet again. And so the lamb walks forward, the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he grabs the scroll. And it says, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think about my prayers transactionally. Like I, I pray and it's gone. And then I pray for this person and it's gone. And I don't really ever think about it again, right? I, I spend that dollar and it's gone. I spend that $20 and it's gone and I never see it again. But scripture tells us that God stores up our prayers in bowls in heaven. And he holds on to them and he knows them and they have meaning and they have significance. And so we don't pray without without fault. We don't pray with, with no reason. We don't pray unknowingly, but God holds on to our prayers. He listens to us. Isn't that so comforting? And when the lamb takes the scroll, those elders, those with the bowls, they sing a new song with these words. And before we get there, remember, why was the father, the one who was sitting on the throne, worthy of all praise? Because he created us. But now the elders, they sing a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. And here's the words again, for you, right? For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. The lamb is worthy of our praise because he gave up his life for us. 
The lamb is worthy of our praise because not only did he give up his life for us, but then God vindicated him, rose him from the grave. He endured suffering, he endured immense pain so that you and I could have life. So that you and I could be set free from sin. You see, God did not see it fit for us to remain separated from him. I'll say that again. God was not pleased for us to remain separated from him. So what did he do? He sent his own son into the world to live so that you and I could have a relationship with him. I love to say this over and over again at youth group. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And when we see Jesus, we know his love for us. And what did Jesus do? He gave up his life so that you and I might live. Amen. Now, Scripture says, what man would give up his life even for a good person, right? That's in Romans. But the Bible says that Jesus gave up his life for us while we were still sinners. Friends and family, there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. It is only by accepting the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior can we be saved. He gave up his life freely for us so that we might have life. And all we have to do is accept him as our Lord. And guess what? All of heaven is worshiping him. And so I titled my message, What Will Heaven Be Like? And this is what you're, what you're reading right now is a good picture. We will all be worshiping the lamb, the lamb of God, because he gave up his life. Because this act is so good. It's the greatest story ever told. There's nothing that compares to it. He gave up his life for you and I. And by giving up his life, he saves us. He ransoms us, and then he causes us to be a kingdom of priests for our God. And I can't even begin to imagine what this means. And it says that they will reign on the earth. I, can't, I cannot wait for that time. In verse 11, John writes, he says, Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And I, I paused right there and, I, and I, I read over those words and I kind of stumbled, I kind of tripped. And I said, could it be that one day every creature will worship Christ, even those who do not choose to worship him now. And scripture says that the lamb is so worthy of praise that one day even those who do not follow him now will say that he is worthy. One day all of heaven will worship him and every creature on earth and under the earth. And what do they sing? Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, they sing, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings, the angels, they said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. So I ask you the question, what will heaven be like? We will be worshiping Jesus. We will be worshiping the Father, the one who sits on the throne, and it will be perfect. We will see him fully. We will be unhindered by the weight of sin. We will be unhindered by the weight of suffering. We will be unhindered by the weight of cancer, of disease, of selfishness, of pride. There will be no more pain. We will see the lamb and we will worship him. And so friends, when we worship here today, we join in a song that's gonna be sung in the future. When we join our song today, we join all of heaven 
singing the song, Worthy is the Lamb. And so this morning, I, I asked Gabe to close us in the song, Worthy is the Lamb. And now you've read the text and you've seen what the vision in heaven. And so we too can join all the angels. We too can join the elders and we can worship the Lamb. Would you stand with me while I pray for us before we close in worship? Jesus, you are so worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our glory for you gave up your life for us. You came and you grabbed us from the pit of ourself and you have set us free. And so Jesus, now we look to you with eyes to see and we worship you for you are worthy. We give you all of our praise. We give you all the glory. Lord, help us lift up a new song in our hearts. Even if we're suffering here this morning, if we're hindered by sin, lift up a new song in our hearts so that we can sing to you, so that we can worship you, and so that we can join all of heaven in the song that is already being sung. Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.